0: You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When I was a kid, my parents used to get me these thousand-piece puzzles. It was really their tactic of ditching me for a little while, and they'd give me these big puzzles and send me off to do these puzzles and I would sit there with a bunch of scattered pieces all around trying to figure out how to fit them all together and at times I would start off hopeful but before long I would get frustrated and weary of the whole thing because it seemed impossible to get all of these pieces surrounding me into one coherent, connected whole. But on one occasion, when I was sitting there surrounded by puzzle pieces, my dad came into the room, and he observed me for a few minutes, and then he said, son, son, you have to look at the top of the puzzle box, That is your reference point. You will never be able to see all of these pieces come together unless you get the top of the puzzle box fixed in your mind. This is your guide. The more you get the details of that picture in your head, the better you'll do at getting all the pieces connected together. And then he sat down with me and would help me to finish the puzzle. Diversity is a buzzword of importance in this cultural moment, isn't it? It's reflected in the media we consume. If you take a look at a Target ad, you're going to see ambiguously brown people. You know what ambiguously brown people are. People that look like me, you're like, I don't what are you? Where are you from? Right? Because they wanted to connect with all different kinds of people. Major corporations are adding new C-suite positions to their corporate structure, adding chief officer of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's also the case that conference planners are under increasing pressure to make sure that their speaker panels and their speaker lineups represent a, a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. One could argue that we've never seen Such a concentrated social effort to achieve cross-cultural diversity. Here's the sad irony, though. When we look around at the state of our society, all we see are a bunch of scattered puzzle pieces. And it often seems impossible to put those pieces together. The past few years have brought a growing polarization, tribalism, ...and racial retrenchment. We have become estranged from our neighbors who are different from us. And even within the church, we have become estranged from one another. We have what a good brother named Ed Gilbreth calls reconciliation blues. However hopeful we may have started off when we first got the notion to be concerned about cross-cultural love... Many of us are now frustrated and downright weary of the whole pursuit. This is why we need the season of Advent. This is why we need Advent. Advent is the season where we honestly face the disappointment, the brokenness, the suffering, and the pain that characterizes life in this present world. But these are held in dynamic tension with the promise of the new world to come. We live our lives in the tension between the tragedy of this world and the triumph of the world to come. Advent begins in the dark, but it moves toward the light. So for these next four weeks of Advent, we are going to work through a series called A Weary World Rejoices. In case you don't know, that is taken from one of the best of our Advent hymns. Happens to be Pastor Irwin's favorite. <laughs> and what we're going to do in this series is we're going, to take, uh, we're going to take a look at how it is that Christ fulfills our deepest longings. We're only going to be able to name four of them, but this morning we are going to take a look at the top of the puzzle box in Revelation 7 to see... How God will meet our longing for cross-cultural love and community connection. Is that a longing of yours this morning? I assume it to be a longing of everyone in this room because of who we have said we're going to be as a church. I see it all over. Whether you're a Christian or not, you long for this. It's it's a shared value in our society. and We're going to see how it is that God... Fulfills that longing. We're going to approach this text through two points as we consider the coming reunion and the coming redeemer. So let's look at our first point where we consider the coming reunion. The Apostle John, as we encounter this text, is exiled on the island of Patmos, as he says it, on account of of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He has been exiled. The emperor Domitian required citizens to confess that as the Caesar, he was Lord and God. This was the test of their loyalty as Roman citizens. But John identifies as a citizen of a different kingdom who acknowledges one Lord and God, Jesus Christ. And now God uses him while he's exiled on the island of Patmos, to call the church to endurance in persecution and assurance of victory. That's John's ministry to the church at the time. God uses him to call the church to endurance in persecution and assurance of victory. And he does this by giving them an astonishing vision of the final scene of God's story. And what did he see? Take a look at verse nine. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, from all peoples and languages. The first thing that John sees in this final scene of glory is diversity. Now here's what's interesting. When John was reporting the vision that was revealed to him of that final scene, he could have kept the crowd generic. He could have said, and then I saw a whole bunch of folk. He just could have kept it generic. But look at what he does. He piles on the language to describe the incredible diversity of this throne room scene. And notice that the diversity that he names gets down into dialects and diverse tribal distinctions. In other words, he doesn't just see Nigerians, he sees Yoruba and Igbo people. He doesn't just see Kenyans, he sees Maasai and Kamba people. He doesn't just see Chinese, he sees Tibetan and Mongolian people. He sees Arabs and Americans Bengalis and Punjabis, Danes and Dominicans, Jews and Japanese, Persians and Portuguese, Scottish and Somali, Peruvians and Polynesians. John saw the diversity and he wanted the church to see it too. And we must repent because we often allow certain people groups to become invisible to us. I was once talking with a homeless friend of mine sitting outside of 7-Eleven on 12th Street. Mr. Jones. If he's not cussing me, he's my best friend. It, it, it's, it's one or the other, all right? And we were sitting down one time and I asked Mr. Jones, I said, Mr. Jones, if you can share with anyone, what is the hardest part of your life that you have to live? What would you tell them is the hardest part? And without missing a beat, He didn't say the pangs of hunger in his belly. He didn't say the the, the cold in the winter. He said the feeling of being invisible, that nobody can see me. I was struck by that. We have to repent because we allow people to become invisible to us. And oftentimes the people that we are willing to see, the way in which we deal with them is we try to hammer down their distinctiveness to make them into our likeness, to make them assimilate to our cultural context. We all do this to the other. But this text tells us that God loves the diversity of all that he has made, and we must love what he loves and think his thoughts after him. Take a moment, family, to appreciate that this final scene is being given to the first century church at the beginning of their mission. The end is stated at the beginning because God wants this final scene to mark their mission all the way home. He wants to fix it in their minds what He is going to do and how He is going to use them as His community. This scene was completely unknown and unthinkable to first century people. Unity in diversity was unheard of in their world. But the Lord gives the church this profound picture of the coming kingdom so that we can join him as participants in his work. Now think about it. Think about that first century church. As they were working out this vision, Taking the gospel to the nations, you can imagine the challenges that they faced. In fact, you don't even have to imagine it. You can turn to the book of Acts and see the challenges that the church faced, taking the gospel out to all peoples. And not only did they have challenges in connecting with different people out there in the world... But once they did connect with people and brought them together into one community, then the real fun began. Then the real challenges began. The real challenges deepened as they tried to figure out life together. And you can imagine that there were times for the first century church where they thought, how in the world is this ever going to happen? How in the world is the Lord going to hold us together? How is the Lord going to help us to overcome the divisions and the polarities and the tribalism of this time? You could imagine that there were lots of doubts, frustrated longings. And the Lord gives this picture to His church as an encouragement to show us it shall be done. It shall be done. The Lord initiated this cross-cultural vision. The Lord sustains it. The Lord resources it. And the Lord will bring it to completion. When we're tired and feel like we can't give anymore or endure anymore, we can look to this final picture for encouragement and endurance to press on. But we must also remember that... This is a picture of glory. It's a vision of the future. And I often hear people suggest that the problem with our divisions is that we talk about our differences and that we should all just forget about our distinctions. But notice what what happens in the scripture. Even our differences and our distinctions get a mention in glory. They are that important to the Lord who made us. They're that valuable to God. It's so significant to God that he would name it in his final picture. Even in glory, ethnic distinctions and diversity are not erased They simply serve to accentuate the celebration. Unity in diversity mattered enough to get a mention in glory. So we have no biblical warrant for ignoring our distinctions, but we have every biblical warrant for recognizing, reconciling, and celebrating our distinctions together. The problem with our divisions is not about the differences around us. It's about the depravity within us. That's the problem with our divisions. It's our selfishness. It's our controlling nature. It's our self-protectionism. It's our lack of consideration for neighbor. It's our lack of concern for what's going on in the lives of the people around us. It is the sin within us that leads to the broken structures around us. The differences are not the problem, the depravity is. It's the depravity within that leads us to exclude the other and disregard the other by dehumanizing the other. This is what allows us to accept conditions for our neighbors that we would not accept for ourselves. This is what leads us to choose a posture of fear, suspicion, and conflict rather than a posture of faith, curiosity, and communion. Two different postures. You can either take the posture of fear, suspicion, and conflict when it comes to difference, or you can take the posture of faith, curiosity, and communion. But how are all these different puzzle pieces put together in Revelation chapter 7? We are handed no shortage of means to achieving diversity in this world. How's that going? You ask any of our experts. We have experts in this church, in this church community, experts on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And every time I talk to them, they have a new frustration about it because things aren't moving along or they're too slow or the pace of change is controlled by those in power. And so it motivates keeping the status quo. How's it going, all these efforts that that we've taken? A fair question could be, how's it going in the church? That brings out the importance of what we witness in this text Concerning how the puzzle pieces are put together Let's look at our second point The coming redeemer Notice, John sees diversity But notice that the very next thing That John sees Is extraordinary He saw diversity But what were these diverse people doing? Look at verses 9-10 through standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The next thing that John saw was doxology bringing the diversity together. It is a scene of worship. But I need to remind you of just why this scene of worship is so profound, so rowdy, so raucous and joyous and exciting. You have to see who they were seeing. This is why they were crying out. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. When John sees who they were seeing, this is how he describes it. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Now go back to Revelation 7 and see why this diverse group is gathered in unity around the throne. They are laying eyes on that God and Savior, and it is overwhelming. The G-forces of his glory are absolutely weighing on them, pressing them down, overwhelming them with his majesty. They are overwhelmed by who he is and what he has done. And their spontaneous reply is, salvation belongs to our God. Now their pain has turned to praise Their life of worry has turned to worship. Their frustrations have turned to fulfillment. Their tears have been translated into triumph. And their faith has become sight. Every single person in this diverse congregation gathered around that throne is shouting praise to the Lamb, not whispering. This was not a tame affair. The whole place was like the the game-winning touchdown at the Super Bowl, and everyone's erupted, and everyone's screaming and celebrating, salvation belongs to our God. That is giving you a sense of what happens in a person when the sin that blocks you up is removed, and you can behold him and respond to him for all that he is. They are blown away. Because every cultural group, each and every ethnicity, every tribe and language group has found in Christ a Savior who is uniquely suited to their greatest need. Each one had a story to tell of his faithfulness, his goodness, and his many mercies every morning that they woke up in their lives. Each could lay out a grocery list of sins over which Jesus stamped, canceled. They are bowed over by the goodness and glory of Christ. There is a song that we sing at Grace Mosaic. It's called, I Shall Wear a Crown. And at the end of the song, it says, I'm going to put on my robe... And tell the story how I made it over. I'm going to tell the story of how the Lord brought me from a mighty long way. I'm going to tell the story of how he brought me through suffering and through disappointment and through trials and loss. He brought me through my own failures and flaws. It was the grace of the Lamb that brought me to this throne room today. They are mutually celebrating the many stories, the ripple effect of the redeeming love of Christ. That is fueling their worship. I want you to notice something. I want you to think about everything that's not in the center of this scene binding the diverse crowd together. Partisan politics is not at the center of this scene. Neither shared hobbies, shared causes, or national origin are centered, unifying the diversity. It's the Lamb. It's the lamb. And there's an important picture here that we need to lay hold of. John calls him the lamb in this scene. Jesus is called by many names in scripture. He's wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. He's Emmanuel. He's the son of God. He's the son of man. He's the bright and morning star. John could have pulled any of these names to describe the one in the center. But he chooses the lamb. And what that shows us is that it is cross-centeredness that keeps cross-cultural together. It is cross-centeredness that resources the life of cross-cultural love. Without the cross... Cross-cultural love is a farce. Mm. It's like a car with no gas. Yeah. It can't go anywhere. It can look pretty. It can be fancy. Could have paid a lot of money for it. But it will take you nowhere in the end. It is the Lamb who holds this diversity and unity. It is love, gratitude, And reverence for the Lamb that unifies this diversity. And that, friends, is meant to shape our lives here and now. Here and now. That final picture is supposed to invade our present. That future life is to get a hold of our present life. So that we can live in the tension in the way that most adorns and points to the life to come. Also notice that this diverse crowd is wearing white robes and waving palm branches. Waving palm branches was a sign of victory. And I want you to think about what this meant to a first century church that was absolutely marginalized in society. Think about this. Think about what this meant to a church that was persecuted by the power of the state. They were being burned at the stake. They were being used as torches to light gardens. And think about what it meant for them to get a picture of the final scene and to know that they would be caught up into the victory of the lamb. I want you to see that the Lord has a word for the marginalized. And if that describes you this morning, I want you to know that you can be caught up into the victory of Christ. You can find yourself in this scene one day by faith alone and Christ alone. Not your striving, not your performance, not your perfectionism, not your resume, not your status or your position or your vocation or your career achievements. Simple faith in Christ will help you to find yourself in this scene one day. This was meant to help a weary and marginalized people to persevere. John saw diversity. And John saw doxology. And when you put the two together, what you see in this text is doxological diversity. And that is the distinction of the church. That is a distinctive of the church. Which is to say this, why do we pursue cross-cultural love For the glory of God. And what is the result of pursuing cross-cultural love? God is glorified. It points to Him. It says, I must decrease so that He can increase. It says, priority number one for me is love for God. And priority number two is love for neighbor. In fact, they're, they're actually one priority, joint, a twin priority. It's diversity, shared worship of Christ that brings this diversity into unity. We live into this final scene, family, as his people because we have an understanding of who we are. Now, I have often said that we don't pursue diversity because we want to be politically correct. Okay, A lot of people, they pursue this because they don't want anyone to come after them. Or they know that if they fail to do it, they're going to get lit up. He used to say, we don't pursue it for the purposes of political correctness. But then I thought about this for a while, and I was like, actually, we do. Because we have one primary politic. Yeah. Jesus is Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. And because Jesus is Lord, yeah, yeah, yeah. we seek to live in cross-cultural love. Yeah, yeah. Those are our marching orders. But let me leave you with a few thoughts so that I can get to Grace Marine in Hill. I told Pastor Duke, I said, I told Pastor Duke, I said, you know, y'all might be on your, uh, your sixth stanza of just as I am by the time I get over there. But I'm going to try and make it quick. Let me leave a few things with you. What does this text mean for us? It means that we need a better ethic. We need a better ethic than what is given to us. You know what the ethic that is given to us in the world? Tolerance. But I'm going to tell you something right now, and you all know it's going to. You're, as soon as you hear it, you're going to know it's true. You can tolerate someone while you look down your nose at them, thinking you're better than them. You can tolerate someone while allowing their conditions of marginalization and injustice to go unaddressed. You can tolerate them. The ethic of the Christian community is not tolerance; it's love, and love will not allow you to remain passive. While the beloved is suffering, love will not allow you to disregard the beloved or to ignore the cries of the beloved or to distance yourself from the beloved. Love demands proximity. We need a better ethic. We also need a better ecclesiology. That is to say, we need a better self understanding as the church. What is the church? What is the church? It's God's family that he has called together as a missionary community to go and spread his love and his kingdom in the world. This is who we are. We are supposed to be a foretaste of the coming kingdom. We're supposed to be the trailer of that movie that is to come. We're supposed to be the brochure of glory. They're supposed to get a little taste of that life to come. Let me put it to you this way. You've heard me say it before, but I'm just going to repeat it. I love going to the mall. Not because I like to shop, but because they have this wonderful place called the food court. And in the food court, they have these wonderful people who stand outside with these trays, with these delicious little pieces of meat with toothpicks in them. And... You know, every time I walk into the food court, I come by and they're like, hello, sir, would you like some bourbon chicken? And I say, why, yes, yes, I would like some bourbon chicken. (laughs) And so I grab that little delicious piece of meat and it never fails. I get a few steps away and it gets good to me. And so I try to take advantage of being ambiguously brown. So the next time I I come, I walk and make a circle around the food court and I come up and I say, hola, que es eso? And they kind of look at me like this, like, didn't you just come? I'm seeing no say, I I Sabe lo que estoy diciendo, quiero eso, right? And so I take that little piece of meat, and it's still good to me. And so I make another round, I got one more in me, and I come up and I say, Asalam alaykum. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> now, now here's the thing. Why, why are these people standing out front with these little pieces of meat? Why? they want you to get a little taste so that you'll come in and get the real thing. We are supposed to be a little taste so that people can get a taste of the mercies of God, of the patience of God, of the grace and and servanthood of God so that they will say, "That, that got good to me, I want the real thing. That is our calling as God's community. We have to remember That we are God's appointed means of bringing this picture to pass. We often say that we want to see God do great things, but we forget that we are his means. We're his means. We said we want to see the poor cared for. But we have to realize we're the means. God wants to do that work and he wants to use us to enlist us. God is going to bring this picture of cross-cultural community to pass. But he is using us. We must take up our role as his servants and his means. Final thing I want you to do is take hope. We don't engage cross culturally from a heart of pragmatism. We don't do it because it works. If you do it, if you only do it because it works, you'll abandon it when it doesn't seem to be working. We don't do it because it's popular. Because if you only do it because it's popular, what happens when it becomes unpopular? We don't do it for any of these nefarious reasons. We pursue it for the glory of God. We pursue it from a place of having been deeply loved and out of an impulse to share that deep love we have received. Your work on the cross-cultural front is not in vain. When you come into tough times when it doesn't seem to be working, when people aren't operating according to your plans to become like you want them to become, that does not alleviate the call. But it also doesn't leave you in a place of vain living. He's going to redeem every effort you make on the journey of cross-cultural love. Our neighbors are not our competitors. Grace And love in God's economy are not a zero-sum game. More grace for for them does not mean less grace for me. More love for them does not mean less love for me. We have come to the fountain. (laughs) The inexhaustible fountain of love. So let us pray that our polarization will give way to gospelization. Amen.